Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 37 years we have engaged the public in reflection and dialogue on key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. Our hour-long forums are always free and open to all. We invite you to join us in the Sanctuary of Westminster Church for our upcoming events. Information can be found online at westminsterforum.org or on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn as well. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I'm the moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Dr. Nadine Burke Harris is a pediatrician and widely acclaimed advocate for children's health. She received her medical degree from the University of California, Davis, and her master's degree in public health from Harvard. She's the founder and CEO of the Center for Youth Wellness, which researches the impact of adverse childhood experiences on long-term health, behavior, and learning. A recipient of the Arnold P. Gold Foundation's Humanism in Medicine Award and the Heinz Award for the Human Condition, she has shared her findings at the Mayo Clinic, American Academy of Pediatrics, Google Zeitgeist, and Dreamforce. In her new book, The Deepest Well, healing the long-term effects of childhood adversity. She explores the ways the human biological system can be imprinted for life by adverse childhood experiences. Her research and scientific insights have influenced and informed the practices of many organizations working with vulnerable children, including the co-sponsor of today's forum, Washburn Center for Children. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. It is such a pleasure and honor to be here. I'd like to start by just sharing a little bit about how I got into this work and what was the journey that brought me to this place in terms of investigating adverse childhood experiences and toxic stress. This all started for me a little over a decade ago now when I finished my pediatrics residency training at Stanford and I decided I wanted to work in a place where I was needed. I wanted to put my talents and my training to use in a place where I felt like I was really making a difference in the lives and in the health of vulnerable communities. And so I uh, came to work for California Pacific Medical Center um, in San Francisco, and together we opened a clinic in a neighborhood of San Francisco called Bayview Hunters Point. And uh, Bayview Hunters Point, it's a neighborhood of families. It has one of the highest rates of home ownership in the city of San Francisco. It's a predominantly a neighborhood of communities of color with uh, really high numbers of African Americans and Latinos and Pacific Islanders. Um, but it also faces a lot of challenges. This is a place where uh, where for most neighborhoods in San Francisco, the leading cause of death is heart disease, as it is in the United States in general. In two neighborhoods in San Francisco, the leading cause of death is HIV AIDS. But in one neighborhood, Bayview Hunters Point, 
the leading cause of death is violence. And that was the place where I decided to hang a shingle. And when I uh, got out into practice, and I spent time in the community, because this, uh, for folks who do community-based pediatrics, they know that this is really critical to get out there and have some face time and establish trust. And when I said to members of the community, you know, we're opening a clinic, send us your kids. And a funny thing happens when folks see you out at schools and in after school programs and th sit through three Sunday sermons in a row at the community church in Bayview, um, is that they really believe that you're the real deal. And so when we opened the clinic, they did a remarkable thing. They entrusted to me their greatest treasure, which is the health of their children. And as I was seeing kids over and over again, I started noticing a disturbing trend. And, and that was that lots of kids were being referred to me for ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, but when I did what I was trained to do, when I did a thorough history and physical exam, for most of my patients, I couldn't make a diagnosis of ADHD. And the reason is because I'm kind of a super science nerd, right? And so when you read, I'm a real stickler for details, and when you read the diagnostic criteria, the last line, it lists all of the symptoms, inactivity, you know, hyperact uh, hyperactivity, inattention, difficulty with impulse control, all of the things that my kids were demonstrating. But the last line is that it said, and these symptoms are not caused by any other mental health disorder. Well, I'm not a mental health specialist. I'm a pediatrician, but what I do know is that if my, child, my, if my patient was having those symptoms and they had a brain tumor or uh, you know, some other neurologic disorder, we wouldn't call it ADHD, right? We would call it something else. And so I started asking myself this question, could it be caused by another biological disorder? And the reason I was putting those pieces together was that when I was noticing this trend, what I observed was that my patients who had the worst symptoms were also the ones that in the history part of history and physical were being exposed to the highest rates of adversity. Kids who were being uh, exposed to abuse and neglect at home, who were living with, with parents and caregivers who were substance dependent or who had untreated mental illness. And the funny thing was, it wasn't just their behavior, right? It was also their health. I will never forget the day that I saw a patient a 10-year-old girl who had terrible asthma, and I had her on some really powerful medications. And as I sat down with her mom to once again ask the question, 
can, let's think about her asthma triggers, right? There's no pets at home. We've got the, the you know, anti-allergy covers on the mattresses and the pillows. Can you think of anything that could be triggering your daughter's asthma? And I will never forget what this mom said to me. She said, you know, doctora, I notice that my daughter's asthma tends to act up every time her dad punches a hole in the wall. And so for me, I started putting, connecting those dots, putting those pieces together. And uh, I did that just because that was something that I learned to do very early on. And I learned this from my dad. So my father, Basil Burke, he is a Jamaican immigrant, he's a father of five, and he happens to have a PhD in organic chemistry. <laughs> and when I was a kid, I figured out really early on that my dad was not like other dads, right? So when we were kids, you know, acting crazy, throwing paper airplanes at each other, right? And he would come upon this scene Instead of doing what your average parent would do, you know, stop that now or you're going to put your eye out, not Basil Burke. What my father would do is he would grab his stopwatch and his tape measure and he would say, okay, now if you time your throw and then you measure the distance, you can calculate the velocity, right? <laughs> and then with gravity at 9.8 meters per second squared, you can calculate the lift under the wings and... and in retrospect, right, in hindsight, I see this was actually genius parenting. Because what would happen is my brothers would drop their stuff and get the heck out of there. <laughs> but not me. I couldn't get enough. My dad brought physics and chemistry and biology to bear on everything that we did as kids. I remember as a child eating a, a Jamaican curry and spilling some on my white blouse. And as I went to wash it out, this bright yellow stain went from yellow to a pinky purplish color. And they, you know, there I was thinking about a ruined blouse and my dad looks at it and he says, oh, well curry must be an acid-base indicator, you know? <laughs> But what I learned from my father was that behind every natural phenomenon, there is a biological mechanism. You just have to look for it. And so when I saw this trend in my patients, this really powerful connection between my patients' history of adversity and their behavior and health problems, for me, the question immediately was, how, what is going on here? What is the biological connection that underpins this association that I'm seeing? And so I threw myself into the, into the research and the scientific literature. And what I found completely changed my medical practice and ultimately, it changed my career. So when I came across a research study 
right, called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. This was a research study that was done by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and Kaiser Permanente, the healthcare giant. And in it, they asked 17,500 adults about their histories of 10 categories of adverse childhood experiences. These include physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, physical and emotional neglect, or growing up in a household where a parent was mentally ill, substance dependent, incarcerated, where there was parental separation or divorce, or domestic violence, right? These were all of the things that I was seeing in my patients. And what these researchers found were two things that defied conventional wisdom. The first was that ACEs were incredibly common. Two-thirds of their population of 17,500 people had at least one adverse childhood experience, and one in four, sorry, one in eight individuals had four or more adverse childhood experiences, right? And for me, that completely defied my understanding, right, that ACEs, you know, when we think about this, we think of it as these types of things happen in certain communities or to certain individuals. And for m many of the people that are experiencing these ACEs, they're thinking to themselves, wow, I thought it was only me. But it turns out it's two-thirds of the U.S. population, right? Because this study has now, uh, this, this data has now been collected across uh, almost 40 states and the findings are the same. More than half of us have experienced at least one adverse childhood experience and between 13 and 17% of the population with four or more adverse childhood experiences. The second thing that they found, which was a real game changer for me, was that the higher the ACE score, the higher the risk for not just behavior problems, not just mental health problems, not just issues with substance dependence, but with medical health problems. In fact, a person with four or more adverse childhood experiences has double the risk for heart disease, double the risk for cancer, two and a half times the risk of stroke, almost four times the risk of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, 11 times the risk of Alzheimer's, one and a half times the risk of diabetes, and 30 times the risk of suicide. So those conditions that I listed, those seven conditions, are in the top 10 leading causes of death in the United States. And so we now understand, here is this condition that affects two-thirds of Americans, right? One in eight have four or more adverse childhood experiences, and those one in eight have roughly double or more the risk of seven out of ten of the leading causes of death in the United States of America. So for me, if that doesn't constitute a public health crisis, I don't know what does. And, you know, in, in the deepest well, I talk about my experience, my journey, of first going to the leadership of the hospital and saying, oh my goodness, adverse childhood experiences, what do we do about it? And the folks looked at me and they said, 
Sounds terrible. What are you going to do about it, right? And so for me, what I did was created the Center for Youth Wellness to better understand the biological mechanisms, this, these biological underpinnings of toxic stress. And what we now know, and let me say this, the reason that's so important is because when we understand the mechanism, then we can use that science for prevention and treatment. And what we now know is that it all boils down to our biological fight or flight response, right? And it works a little something like this. Imagine you're walking in a forest and you see a bear, right? What happens in our brains and bodies? Our brain sends a signal to our bodies to release stress hormones, like adrenaline and cortisol. And so our hearts start to beat faster, right? Our pupils dilate, our airways open up, our blood pressure and our blood sugar increase so that we have energy to be able to either fight that bear or run from the bear. But the problem is that if you were to think about it, fighting a bear wouldn't seem like a good idea, would it? <laughs> because a bear's big and he's got teeth and he's got claws. And that's why the part of our brain that sounds the alarm, the amygdala, actually sends projections to the part of the brain that's responsible for impulse control and judgment and executive functioning, the prefrontal cortex and it turns it way, way down. Because you don't want impulse control getting in the way of survival, right? And the other thing that happens when we activate our stress response is that it also activates our immune response. Because if that bear gets his claws into you, you want your immune system to be primed to bring inflammation to stabilize that wound so that you could either live long enough to either beat that bear or get away. It's brilliant. It was evolved over millennia to save our lives from a mortal threat. But the problem is what happens when the bear comes home every night. And this biological system is activated over and over and over and over and over again. And it goes from being life-saving to being health-damaging. Children are especially sensitive to this repeated activation of the stress response because their brains and bodies are just developing. So high doses of adversity in childhood affect the structure and function of children's developing brains, but not just their brains. It affects their developing immune system, their developing hormonal systems, and even the way their DNA is read and transcribed. So for me, as a pediatrician, what that meant when we understood this science, right? When we, you, I mean, you all should see me pouring through these scientific journals because whereas for a lot of people, I think it's easy to see this science and to see uh, this research as, as being worrisome or deterministic, for me, it's profoundly hopeful because when we have this science, that gives us the blueprint to understand how we can disrupt this process. And this is what the science shows us. There are a couple of things. 
Number one, the science tells us that early detection improves outcomes. When we do early detection and early intervention, kids do better. And I'm not talking about just a little bit better. I am talking about when we look at randomized controlled trials for children who get early intervention, we're talking about changes to their brain structure that is measurable on MRI. When, and the things, the interventions that we know make a difference, what I talk about in the deepest well is that this is not rocket science. I don't know, maybe it's more exciting than rocket science, right? What we know make a difference, all of the research tells us that the number one thing is safe, stable, and nurturing relationships and environments. But guess what? There are other things that work as well. Good old-fashioned um, uh, mental health care. Who knew? Still works, right? <laughs> These things are actually healing to children from the inside out. Regular exercise, good sleep hygiene, the right kinds of nutrition, mindfulness like meditation, all of these things help to reduce stress hormones, reduce inflammation, and enhance neuroplasticity, which is our brain's ability to make new connections in response to our environments. But in order to be able to implement any of these interventions, we first have to understand what's going on. And that's why our team at the Center for Youth Wellness have set a bold mission to get every pediatrician in America screening for adverse childhood experiences by 2028. All right? <laughs> Because despite the fact that this research was published now two decades ago, today only 4% of pediatricians in the United States are screening for adverse childhood experiences, and that needs to change. I believe that the science of adverse childhood experiences and toxic stress gives us new tools to be able to address what we have so long believed are some of society's most intractable problems. But the big challenge is that we have not been approaching some of these challenges with this science or this understanding to be able to recognize that what happens in childhood, what happens in our earliest days, sets us on a trajectory for our life health and outcomes, and the investments that we make early to make sure that that trajectory, that foundation is a strong and healthy one, ultimately pays dividends in every segment of our society. So I will stop there and open it up for questions. Thank you.
Thank you, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is pediatrician Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, author of the book, The Deepest Well, Healing the Long-Term Effects of Childhood Adversity. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to thank our broadcast partner, the statewide network of Minnesota Public Radio News, heard in the Twin Cities at 91.1 FM, and the media sponsor of today's forum, the online news source, MinPost. A very special thank you to the co-sponsor of today's forum, Washburn Center for Children, one of the state's leading mental health services for children, providing therapeutic services to children experiencing trauma. We invite the radio audience to join us at Westminster Church for our next forum on Tuesday, May 1st at noon, when Steve Schmidt, political strategist and former communications director for the 2008 John McCain presidential campaign, will offer a candid look at today's headlines. Our events... <laughs> there might be some headlines between now and then we want to look at, who knows? Our events at the Forum are always free and open to all. Further information is available online, westminsterforum.org. And now, Dr. Burke Harris, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from the audience. First question has to do with one of the characters in your story that you tell, uh, Diego. Uh, as I read about Diego, and you're first getting to know him as a seven-year-old, then as a teenager later, uh, I wondered about Diego's children and uh, whether there's any evidence that, I'm thinking now of family systems theory, whether adverse childhood experiences are generationally uh, transmitted in families. Do we have any evidence of that? Um, it's a great question. I will say that in my clinical practice, I have never come across a patient who had significant adverse childhood experience, whose caregiver didn't also have significant adverse childhood experiences. Uh, I would say almost by definition, this is handed down from generation to generation, which I think, again, is a really important and hopeful understanding because that what that tells us is that we can break this intergenerational cycle. But in order to do that, we need to take a two-generation approach. We need to support not only the children, but also their caregivers so that they can understand how their own history of ACEs may be impacting their parenting. Question from our audience. Why has the DSM not added childhood trauma as a category so children can be treated for actual cause for ACE <laughs> instead of for mental health or other physical problems and have it paid for by insurance, in other words? Uh, oh my goodness, well if I knew the answer to that, I would be retired. No. Um, I, so this is a change that needs to happen. This is a change that needs to happen not only in the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of uh, Mental Health Disorders, but also to the International Classification of Diseases. And for any doctors who are out there, uh, most of us went through this kind of painful adjustment from the ICD nine to the ICD-10, and um, uh, adverse childhood experiences and toxic stress is, is nowhere in our uh, clinical diagnosis codes. 
What are the connections between community violence or trauma and children uh, experiencing adverse childhood experiences? Can we speak of adverse community experiences? That's a, com that's a question that I receive really commonly. And what we understand about community violence, so one of the, um, to go back, so I spoke a little bit about how adverse childhood experiences activate the biological stress response in a way um, that uh, leads to the overactivity of the stress response that leads to health problems. And this condition is now known by the American Academy of Pediatrics as toxic stress. Now, we know that the 10 adverse childhood experiences in the Kaiser CDC study aren't the only 10 factors that can lead to toxic stress. Um, but what we also understand about toxic stress is that it's not just the exposure to adversity, it's also the uh, disruption of the buffering caregiving system. Right, because we adversity happens in life that is um, oftentimes unavoidable. But what we also know is that safe, stable, nurturing relationships and environments actually biologically buffer our stress response systems. And when those systems are um, either overwhelmed because what's going on in the community is not only to a stressor to the child but also to their caregiver, right? Or when, for example, when we look at the traditional 10 adverse childhood experiences, most of them relate to a condition that not only is stressful for the child, but it also implicitly um, means that the caregiver is, is, there's something wrong in the caregiving system. Right? If a child is experiencing abuse or neglect or they have a caregiver who's mentally ill or impaired, then that child is facing a double whammy, right? Both uh, being exposed to the stressor as well as taking out their natural buffer to that stressor, which should be uh, a healthy and intact parent. Could you say something about the impact particularly of gun violence on young people, even if they're not experiencing it personally, perhaps in the community? The impact of guns and violence. Well, um, I think that the, the threat of gun violence is uh, an ever-present um, fear factor in many communities, and particularly in uh, communities like the one uh, I serve in San Francisco, uh, where, th where there's a high degree of gun violence. Uh, but I think what our nation is increasingly awakening to is that um, that, that level of fear uh, affects children's ability to, to function, to sit in a classroom and be able uh, to learn in whatever environment that, where they are experiencing that. And, uh, uh, you know, we've seen this recently in the headlines, how, you know, many of the young students who uh, have experienced gun violence have been struggling both um, emotionally and also academically. Uh, is the uh, incidence of PTSD among adults just an adult version of uh, uh, traumatic experiences, adverse adulthood experiences? So um, that's a great question. Uh, the difference between PTSD and toxic stress or adverse childhood experiences, and uh, there are a couple of things there. So number one, 
We know that exposure to childhood adversity increases the risk that an individual will have uh, uh, be diagnosed with something like PTSD if they're exposed to trauma in their adult life. And uh, some of that research actually comes from uh, the military, from the Department of Veterans Affairs, that shows that um, uh, uh, service members who have high ACE scores, right, so had high degrees of adversity in childhood before they deployed, are at much greater risk of developing PTSD when they are in service or after returning. So, though, so we understand that that affects the risk. But we also are just now beginning to tease out the science to better understand what truly is toxic stress and those manifestations and what would be better called something else um, like PTSD. And that's research that still needs to happen. Does your research include any uh, information on what we might call in utero trauma or adverse experiences, say prenatal alcohol or drug exposure, how that impacts children's health? So let's be clear, prenatal alcohol and drug exposure have a somewhat different mechanism than um, prenatal exposure to adversity. So alcohol is a neurotoxin, and prenatal exposure to alcohol leads to fetal alcohol syndrome, which is a, uh, has to do with, uh, clearly affects certain parts of the brain. Early exposure to um, uh, adverse childhood experiences or trauma or adversity in utero exposure does affect health. And what's even more interesting is that we're now understanding that a mom's ACE score, right, preconception health, can also impact uh, uh, birth outcomes, perinatal outcomes, and if a mom experienced adversity in her own childhood, Though that long-term activation of the stress response leading to changes in hormones and inflammation and all of that kind of stuff can also affect the, the gestational health of her child without any intervention. And so what that tells us, again, is that as a society, it's really important for us to invest in two-generation interventions. It's important for us to invest in the uh, the prenatal health of um, pregnant moms, but it's also important, it's, it's a little bit of a, of a chicken egg question, it's like when do, we, uh, when do we intervene, and the answer is everywhere. We intervene in childhood, we intervene in pregnancy, we interv- intervene in parenting, and these are all critical times. We have a number of high school students with us here in the studio audience in the sanctuary, and one of them asks, how can school systems facilitate awareness or solutions to these kinds of issues you're raising? I love that question. Um, And um, so one of the things that I talk about in The Deepest Well is the way that uh, an organization called Turnaround for Children in New York really took the science of toxic stress and put it into practice in some high-risk schools in New York. And what they did was understand that, they understood how the experience of adversity, how kids' day-to-day experiences and what they were dealing with at home 
can be affecting the way that they learn and the way they behave in classrooms. And so there are now uh, practices called trauma-sensitive and trauma-responsive practices that schools can begin to put into place. Things like uh, looking at a young person when they're beginning to show symptoms of toxic stress, which you all remember, those kids were being referred to me for, for ADHD, right? And the number one treatment for ADHD is stimulants, right? Medication. But instead of looking at these kids and saying, what's wrong with you? Beginning to look at them and, and beginning to ask the question, what happened to you? <laughs> Thank you. And then putting into place practices that work with a learner's biology, for example, making sure that school personnel are trained and get some education on recognizing the symptoms of toxic stress so that we can begin to tease those apart. And uh, do things like when a child or a young person is activated and is having a really difficult time uh, regulating their behavior, giving them a minute to just kind of sit down and, and, and cool down. Let those levels of adrenaline and cortisol begin to come down. Let that prefrontal cortex come, come back online and make sure that that child understands that they're in a safe environment, right? So that we can begin to interact with the thinking brain, right? And not with the reactive fear brain. If I were a student and ha having heard your presentation or perhaps read your book, and I began to wonder if maybe I had some adverse childhood experiences, perhaps that I didn't even know about or wasn't aware of, but in my own behavior or life, I could sense perhaps this happening. What would you suggest I do? So uh, what I say to my, uh, especially my teenagers in clinic on, the re on a regular basis is um, one of the first and most important things is helping them understand what's going on in their bodies. Because for a lot of young people, they notice that they're quick to react. They notice that they have a hard time and that they struggle. And they've been told that they're the problem, right? And so for a lot of my young people, I say to them, because of what you've experienced, your body may be making more stress hormones than the average person. And that can look and feel like being quick to anger or having trouble controlling your impulses or getting sick easily when you feel overwhelmed. And... Uh, for a lot of my young people, when I say this to them, they say, oh, you mean I'm not crazy, right? And, and then I recommend for them the things that I talk about in The Deepest Well. I, you know, we talk about, first of all, how are they doing on their sleep hygiene? Are they getting regular exercise? Because exercise helps to burn up these stress hormones and helps to release healthy hormones. Uh, what's their nutrition like? Um, you know, nowadays, young folks, you can download a mindfulness app on your phone, right, and practice learning how to uh, strengthen uh, the part of the brain that helps you calm down. It's called the parasympathetic nervous system through a regular mindfulness practice, and I recommend that for my teenagers. And so, and, and making sure that they have someone who they can 
who they trust, who they can relate to and confide in, identify who is that buffer in their life, who is that safe, stable, and nurturing relationship, and building and strengthening that as much as possible. And sometimes it's not a, a parent or a caregiver, sometimes it's a coach or a pastor or a rabbi or a, a, a teacher, um, but strengthening those relationships is absolutely critical. I want to follow up on the notion of mindfulness, which comes out of really a, a Buddhist meditation uh, tradition. To what extent have religious communities uh, proven to be helpful in, in addressing adverse childhood experiences in your, in your work? There is a wonderful organization called ACE Overcomers that was created by a pastor, uh, I believe, in Southern California. And uh, in my experience, as I've been traveling around the country, well, what we understand is that faith communities have this incredible, I mean, I mean, this is what we call them, right? Faith communities. We have this incredible uh, community, this place where, uh, for many people, it is a source of buffering. And I think that it's really critical that we, um, that we exemplify that in our, in our faith communities and that, these, that we make sure that these are uh, relationships, are healing relationships, and I think it's incredibly powerful. You mentioned that only 4% of pediatricians in the U.S. are using uh, screening tools for uh, adverse childhood experience. Is that because of lack of resources or skepticism? Or what's the cause of that? And what would you say to convince the 96% who are not using them? Well, um, I, so our team at the Center for Youth Wellness actually asked uh, a bunch of pediatricians that question. And, um, you know, like me, they didn't get any training in this stuff. I didn't learn about this in medical school or residency. And, you know, I went to some good institutions. So this is really emerging research. But what we understand is that the science is not enough. The science must be coupled with advocacy. And that is an important role that every single one of us has to play. So every single person who's in this room right now, right, can either go home today and spread the word. If you're on social media, share it on social media. If you have a child and they have a doctor, talk to your child's doctor and say, hey, do you know about adverse childhood experiences and are you screening for this? If you have your own doctor, even an adult medicine doctor, right, you can talk to them and say, hey, how do you know about adverse childhood experiences and the impact that it has on lifelong health? And if you don't know, would you be willing to learn? Because unfortunately, I'm going to say we don't have big drug money behind this, right? Typically, uh, you know, when there's some medical breakthrough, there's a, there's a drug company who makes sure that the word gets out. And you didn't even know you needed Viagra, but it turns out, you know... <laughs> Everybody all of a sudden decided that they do, right? We don't, we don't have that with um, adverse childhood experiences. So we need to be the advocates that drive this forward to support practice change. Could you describe some of the most effective interventions for helping children heal from adverse childhood experiences? Well, that's why you got to read the deepest well. Yeah. Uh, so. The, uh, no, really, the, the most effective interventions, again, um, so 
I think the single most effective intervention is just recognizing what's going on in the first place. And this is why the concept of every pediatrician in America screening is so powerful. Because even if you don't have any ACE, your child doesn't have any ACEs, you don't have any adversity going on in your household, the fact that every single family would learn about this from their doctor and would learn that ACEs are not only associated with behavioral and mental health problems, but also with lifelong health problems, including asthma and diabetes and other conditions, I think is really uh, important. And what we know is that interventions like mental health treatment, they work, they improve outcomes, safe, stable, and nurturing relationships and environments, right? Exercise, nutrition, sleep, all of these things that I talk about in the book, but the, 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 the last point I want to make about that is that in order for us as adults to be that safe, stable, and nurturing buffer for a child, it means that we have to put our own oxygen masks on, right? When we're talking about two-thirds of Americans who have experienced ACEs, we're not talking about those people over there, right? We're talking about us. And that means that in order to be able to be that supportive buffer for a child, we have to uh, take a look and understand, hey, what's, what's my own ACE score? How is that affecting how I move through that world? Do I feel like my own stress response is well-regulated or is it a little overactive sometimes, right? And what do I need to do? How do I practice self-care and put my own oxygen mask on so that I can be there to be available for the young person in my life? As you work with students, uh, and if you suspect a student or a young person may have uh, experienced uh, adverse childhood uh, experiences, uh, how do you help that student communicate with his or her parents and, and opening up to the possibility that something in their childhood may have affected them in their young adulthood? So that is a really um, great question. And it came from one of our students, by the way. So when, so when we're talking about adverse childhood experiences, and we're talking about having these conversations in families, and especially um, with young people talking to their parents, that is a place where I really, really, really strongly recommend that young people get support, whether it is through a, uh, a counselor or an advisor or a mental health practitioner, because this is, listen, if this was easy stuff, we would have taken care of it a long time ago, right? But what we understand is that many of the things that are traumatic to children are also traumatic to their parents, right? It affects the entire family system and so that is a place where it really um, makes sense, if possible, to have a, a guiding hand to help walk through that process because chances are that what's, what's difficult and traumatic and triggering for you may also be that way for your parent. And it's the, the rough part of it is, is that you have to be having the, that conversation with your parent, you know, for some kids, their parent will have a, a very understanding and, and great response. But for a lot of folks, whether you're young or old, these are difficult conversations. And so there are 
tools that we can use and skill sets that we can develop to help navigate these conversations so that we can have them safely and we can have them in a way that's helpful that leads to uh, further coming together and further resolution in families. You mentioned that the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, a government agency, is involved, was involved in the study. What kind of support do you see coming from, say, the federal government or, or maybe local, state, and county health systems for support with the kind of work you're doing? I think right now the, the climate that we see from the federal government in terms of health care isn't promising. Um, uh, we, we are, are looking at more disinvestment, um, in, in healthcare, which I think is, um, is a real challenge. I think there's a tremendous opportunity in, in terms of, uh, state and local, uh, government supporting this work. And I think this is a place where, again, we all have a tremendous amount of, uh, power and opportunity to be advocates. We need to let our policymakers know that we care about ACEs. And we need to ask them how they are investing our tax dollars in prevention, screening, and healing. Mm -hmm. Most of the people in this room, probably on the radio listening, are adults. Uh, if an adult senses that uh, they've been through a, an adverse childhood experience 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago, uh, what can be done to, to help them deal with the, the long-lasting implications of that? Well, the good news is that it's never too late to start the healing process. And um, the same uh, recommendations that I make for children, I think, are, uh, are just as relevant for adults in terms of sleep, exercise, nutrition, mindfulness, mental health, and healthy relationships. These things are truly healing. And uh, what we know is that although there are certain types of, for example, uh, brain plasticity, early childhood is a time of very high levels of brain plasticity, certain types of brain plasticity uh, are lifelong. And, and so it's, it's never too late to be, number one, uh, looking at your own ACE score. And for anyone who wants to take the ACE test, uh, there's one at the back of the book, or they can also go to a website called Stress Health, S-T-R-E-S-S-H-E-A-L-T-H.org. Uh, which gives more information about, uh, you know, what is toxic stress, what does it look like, what can we do for kids, and what can we do for ourselves. Time for one final question. This is uh, to get you to think um, imaginatively. If you could have a magic wand and make any change you wanted in children's health care, what's the first thing you would do? Well, I, I'm, I'm going to have to... Uh, to stick with the vision that uh, the Center for Youth Wellness has set, which is really, you know, every pediatrician in America needs to be screening for adverse childhood experiences. So if I could wave my wand, it would be that we would have the dollars, the resources, the infrastructure. You know, when people say, if you get one wish, you know, they, I would ask for a thousand other wishes. Um, <laughs> The dollars, the research, the infrastructure, the training, the support, the follow-up, right, to be able to do uh, routine screening, early detection, 
and effective multidisciplinary intervention for adverse childhood experiences and toxic stress. Amen. That was a big magic wand. <laughs> That's all we have time for now. Thank you, Nadine Burke-Harris. We're grateful for your presence here, especially for the word of hope you bring to what is a really challenging situation for many of us. Thank you very much. Thank you.